It is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Hozo podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the super friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lance and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisian, Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. This is Adrian Paul from Highlander, and you're listening to the Dead TV Podcast. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Dead TV Podcast, now in the 1990s. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. We are in the 90s. This is the first episode of the of uh, the, of 1990 of War of the Worlds, the, the, the series, right? It's like uh, January 15th or something? <laughs> yes, this episode, uh, season 2, episode 9, is January 15th, 1990. Synthetic love. Mr. Seneca has the plot synopsis for us. Synthetic love. The aliens develop a new drug made from human brain tissue, planning to use it against uh, the human population to control them. And there was a break, by the way, between this and the last episode. It seemed like, I guess that was the uh, the holiday break, because the last one was in November, correct? Yeah, uh, November 20th to January 15th. You can pretty much say they took off for the holidays. Yeah, I mean, that's what they did back then. That's what they still do with certain network shows now. Um, I, I watch like one. I watch one actually broadcast network show week to week. Uh, whereas before you would watch like everything when it was on network. Now everything's streaming. You know, the Epic TV's War of the World series. I think that's a streaming service or something. Or is that Epic? Is that like a is that a cable channel? The French one. Yeah. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't gotten around to that on my focus areas yet, but I yeah. will be getting to it. I, I've only again watched like the first episode. I really want to give it another chance, but that first episode of that show was just boring. <laughs> there were no aliens, you know. At least with this, we got right to the aliens. <laughs> well, European shows have a little bit more slow burn to them than American shows. Bah! Moving on, <laughs> synthetic love. Um, which I thought this was gonna be like about an android or something. <laughs> You think of synthetic, you think like, I don't know, WandaVision, you know? <laughs> I was thinking like WandaVision, like, like I don't know, Susan was going to fall in love with a robot or something, you know? And then I was going to like quote lines from like Alien Resurrection where uh, Ron Perlman looks at Winona Ryder and he's like, I can't believe I almost fucked her. And the little guy in the wheelchair says, yeah, like you never fucked a robot before. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> no, but in fact, it's the... Nickname for the drug that the aliens manufacture. 
So this is basically a successful uh, drug episode versus the one in season one where we had basically the same plot, but the drug was actually successful right from the get-go. In the first season, there it was like trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. This, it's it's absolutely successful. It calms people down, makes them feel euphoric, like they're in love, and it's injectable. So uh, this yellow liquid is called Crebulax, synthetic love. Now, is that a real... Is that a name of a drug that's actually maybe on the market anywhere? Were we, no. were we able to find no, that now? No, okay. not at all. <laughs> okay, you did research that. Okay. I did. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, <laughs> um, I, my Beginning of my notes say, by the way, a man in a cage, a girl screaming, a hot time at Mr. Zeneca's tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually the guy in the cage is not quite as violent as the one shown on this episode. You command your flock when it comes time to uh, back to uh, BDSM events, don't you? You there is oh, no I script. do, I do. You I do. have okay. so many people waiting for my events to open up. Oh, I can't imagine. I just, I just can't even imagine just what is what you have planned. Um, oh, yeah. Coming back out of quarantine, first I'm gonna have a mixer. You know, people need to get well established into being around other people again. The politeness of society needs to happen before I can turn them on to the whole, you know, play party, dungeon equipment, beat and, and have sex with each other as you will type of party. Two-step uh, process. Th- okay, so we also got to look at the mob in the apocalypse, and the mob seems to be uh, doing pretty well for themselves, despite the fact that there's no Pentagon, there's no government, there's well, like a crappy school the system. They're kind of like the mob, they're gangsters, it's the mob. It's not, though. It's actually a pharmaceutical... A distribution company, perfectly legal, and uh, yeah, exactly. La Fontaine Industries, perfectly legal. La but Fontaine. Yes, they act like the mob. <laughs> that doesn't. That doesn't. That doesn't. That sounds just like any other Italian mobster kind of uh, name. La Fontaine. Oh, sorry. Laporte. La Laporte. Whatever. It sounds Italian. It sounds gangsterish. And they're all like these business suits, you know what I mean? They're in their smoky room. The one guy's really fat, or he's not fat, he's kind of chubby. You know, it's it's a very, like, stereotyping of, like, a mob setting in the apocalypse. But it's not! It's, it's perfectly legal. Oh, whatever. They're the fucking that, mob. They're just disguising themselves as giving away aspirin and Tylenol so they can keep their business going. We're le- I'm a legitimate businessman. I just, I just want to move my legitimate drugs, like Tylenol and aspirin, and this new alien thing. That's my terrible attempt at trying to be um, Don Colorion. Don Colorion. <laughs> uh, no, in this. Mr. Zeneca is in denial that this is the mob. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's, it's the not, fucking. It's not. The pharmacy mob. It's the pharmacy mob, okay? <laughs> okay. In the pharmacy lobbying is very powerful. Yes! This is, this is a point in time where it's been four years after all narcotics have been legalized. So. We don't know how far along this is on our timeline of when the show started and when we are now, but a lot has changed, and there's a lot of exposition in the very beginning of the episode talking about the uh, legalization of all narcotics, how the scientists and experts uh, totally failed in their assumptions, saying that, you know, it did not work out the way they were thinking, and in fact... Contrary to what the experts wanted to believe, homicides actually have risen 
42% since the legalization of narcotics. So this is like drug-related homicides. The legal pharmacies took up the mantle from the gangs to distribute the drugs, but it did not reduce the amount of users or crime. And this is all just exposition given in the very beginning of the episode. It makes it very fascinating. I do love that uh, there is a menu for the drugs at this uh, local little drug dealer shop. <laughs> Did you pharmacy, notice that? Yeah. There were yeah, cocaine, $20 a gram. Heroin, crack, mescaline. I don't know what that is. That's it, a... That's a hallucinogen. Okay. Uh, they, you, I guess you definitely need that in the apocalypse. And hydro... Is the, is the hydro the one that we're, we invented? Hydrocodone, probably. Yeah, okay, hydrocodone. Time. Which is funny. Hydrocodone sounds like... Isn't that... Wait, isn't there hydrocodone? Is yeah, there? hydrocodone is a painkiller. Oh, that's right. I have, I have been on it. I also want to point out, it is 21 minutes into the episode before we ever meet a cast member besides John Kincaid. <laughs> Holy shit. This must have been the day off for everybody. Because they filmed Susan's scenes like, what, Susan's in two scenes. She does her scientist stuff, and then she does her injection stuff to save Kincaid later on. And that is it. But, wow, 21 minutes into this episode, we finally get our cast members. Yeah, yeah. And we, in fact, see one of the guest stars uh, right from the beginning as he's trying to purchase drugs at a pharmacy, and he doesn't have enough money. So then he goes to a nightclub to a dealer. And, of course, the dealer starts beating him up because he owed him money before. And that's when our cast character, Kincaid, walks in to break up the battle. Uh, Kincaid visits a bar, and we hear the welfare system is being shut down. The president blames the drug cartel. That is hilarious that the welfare system was still running up to this point. But uh, the well, we, uh, we, we probably saw the beginning of that collapse. Remember the old lady that gives birth to the hybrid? Uh she had just not received her welfare check. So that might have been the very start of the decline of the welfare system. And now we're so far into it that welfare is stopping completely. Ah, okay, gotcha. Um, the woman who speaks at the drug rehab is the um, pharmacy gangster's daughter. Yeah, and that's played by Catherine Rose. That uh, was interesting that uh, she is uh, pushing for this drug rehab with the uh the the you know the drug mob the pharmacy mob the uh, pharmaceutical mob to uh get them into it it's a very like i don't know full circle kind of thing um you uh you, okay. you we, we well, push the drugs well, on you so we can make more money off of you going to the rehab isn't that yeah, the conspiracy of rehab centers uh the rehab centers laporte industries has these rehab centers. This drug that the aliens manufactured uh, both relieves all, um, all, all withdrawal symptoms of other drugs and psychoses and makes you feel euphoric and basically like it's synthetic love, you know, makes you feel really good. So they have a high success rate in rehabilitation, but just like with heroin users and always keeping them on methadone, it's the same type of thing. They would have to always keep you on this drug in order to, for you to feel this euphoria and keep the effects, therefore selling more of the drugs. Because these people are going through these rehab centers, uh, the aliens in their deals said that they want test subjects in order to take them away and use them. 
Uh, the head of Laporte Industries just turns a blind eye and allows this to happen because the drug is so successful in quote-unquote rehabilitating that he's willing to just do that. And turns out that the secret ingredient in that drug is human brain endorphin receptors. Soylent Green is people! <laughs> uh, our lead pharmacy uh, drug-dealing mobster, played by Vlasta Verana, uh, is from Norway, so he's not Italian. Um... <laughs> He's still working today. He was in something called Sweet as Maple Syrup, made, uh, made for TV movie. I don't know what that is. Um, but he was also he was it was also in the Arkham Horror Mother's Embrace video game, Felix in the Hidden Temple, I, um, the Outer Worlds. He's in a lot of he does a lot of video game voiceover work, which is pretty funny. Uh, no, Felix in the Hidden Treasure is some foreign uh, language. A lot of these films apparently are are foreign. These video games are foreign as well. But, uh, yeah, his career just kind of goes on and on and on. Yeah. He's been working heavily forever in, you know, in and out of country, which is, you know, nice to hear. Catherine Rose didn't really he's, do he's, much. He's the narrator voice on the Canadian case files. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's probably one of those Canadian crime shows. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Catherine was in uh, My Secret Identity, which I haven't watched in a really long time. That is a show we should definitely cover one day. Degrassi on an episode, and she was a backup singer for Sarah McLaughlin. Mm. Actually, you know that don't... girl in the very far, very beginning of the episode, uh, the one that's screaming and whatnot. Oh, her yeah. name is Gigi DeLeon, and this was her first role. Is it her only role? No, no, she's actually had quite a few, but not a long career. You one job or so every few years, uh, and her last gig was in the TV series Flash Forward as uh, um, Nadine. Oh, okay. In the episode called The Gift. Um, we actually might not want to do My Secret Identity. It's 72 episodes, three seasons. I thought that was a one-and-done no. season. Uh, but if you've never watched it, it's pretty good. It stars uh, Jerry O'Connell. Uh, early superhero kind of show. He gets superpowers and has to protect his identity and uh, performs deeds. But he doesn't wear a costume or anything like that. He's, you know, just kind of like, you know, random plot of the episode of the week. And he shenanigans ensue with his... Uh, you know, uncontrollable superpowers. Very much like my secret identity, but without the, you know, the alien plotline. So the addict friend of Kincaid's, his name is Jimmy Wilson, and he's played by Sam Melkin. Unfortunately, the IMDb doesn't have a picture for him, even though he has a long career. I'm surprised at that. Uh, he's actually on the show People of Earth um, as Glenn, and uh, he's been on a few episodes of Friday the 13th, I believe. Oh, one episode of Friday the 13th in Epitaph for a Lonely Soul as Max, which is the lead character in that episode, I believe. And he plays this addict very well. Very yes. well. Yes, he does. Um, Kincaid also plays an addict very well when he gets uh, drugged out somehow. Yeah, he goes undercover. <laughs> yeah, he goes a little bit too undercover, unfortunately. <laughs> he acts so well in this one. So he calls himself John Wolf when he's in disguise. He's very cute. Susan does science to the drug, and that's how she finds out about it. Uh, when John disguises himself as Wolf, uh, which is hilarious, did you see the Hulu TV series Future, Future Man? I have, and one of the characters is called Wolf. Yes. It's hilarious. And he comes from an apocalypse future, 
And yeah. he kind of reminds me of John Kincaid. I'm kind of wondering if the actor watched this show and based his character on John Kincaid because there, there's a lot of similarities between the two of them in the first season. By the end of the first season, seasons two and three, he's become like a completely different character. The same gruff attitude, but like, you know, he's like a French cook or something underground in the sewer. <laughs> <laughs> I love he how they. a lot of cocaine, I know, I know. I love how, yeah, he does a ton of cocaine. And I, you gotta love how they power up. They get, they recharge by fucking each other. Hey, you know, you have to have your traditions. Oh my god, it's crazy. <laughs> People, if you've never seen Future Man, you have to watch Future Man. Yeah, so that that's who that reminded me of. I'm so glad you saw that show. So the, the actual drug is masked, meaning that upon initial analyzation, they can't tell what it's actually made out of. Um, I don't know how they chemically mask things like that, so I can't give you any of the science on that, but Suzanne is able to actually separate it. And in this storyline, the Laporte Industries head has his analyst do the same type of things. And about the same time in the episode, both of them say and realize that it's human brain matter. So Mr. Laporte actually rejects the alien and he does the most, you know, mobster is actually a very good description for this because he takes the daughter and turns Stop. her into the drug. Yes, he takes the daughter and turns it into the drug. It's funny that Susan and the um, the pharmacy find out the exact same time that sort of green is made from people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the exact same time. You know, Mauser is actually like giving the the vial of yellow liquid to the father I mean that's that's just some cold cold activity right there. That that sends a very specific message, and he received it. And so by the end of the episode, Mister Laporte blows his brains out. These aliens aren't fucking around. They they no. they are not bullshit. Unlike the last ones, who the council just sat there and did nothing most of the time. Honestly, they really didn't do anything. Um, their underlings did, and it was just body hopping, basically. You know what I mean? Unless you had one, unless they had one of their big death machines, the aliens from the previous season weren't as much of a threat uh, to be taken down. Now, yes, they were threatening to the unsuspecting human, but otherwise, you know, they were just. It, it, it feels like these aliens are a bit more of a threat than the last ones. Oh yeah, yeah. No, they're cold. Like they are successful. Their plans go well. They may have a tiny bit of setback, but their plan is so widespread that Harrison and his team can't stop them. You know, it, it's just a small annoyance or delay. They've been very successful in bringing down the government, making people turn against one another, providing limited resources, controlling communication. It's been amazing to watch. And this episode, I would have to say so far, this episode is one of my favorites. I watched it, and I was just enthralled every second of it. It had a really wonderful plot. The way all of the um, plot lines intersected, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I wish more of these episodes were like this. Uh, Kincaid has a complete and utter drug freakout, which is hilarious. A little overacting on uh, Adrian's part. He's supposed, I wouldn't say it's overacting. He's supposed to be trying to uh, detox from this drug. And Suzanne, of all people, when, when Harrison asked, what's the dosage on this? She says, I don't know. Uh, she would have known at least a little bit what the dosage on it. Um, so I think most of that, what you call overacting, is him trying to act out 
a misdosed applications. He's getting the overabundance dose, and therefore he goes from screaming to punching to crying to a suicidal thought and raising the gun to his head. So, yeah, he goes through all of the emotions, and I think that's valid. That's all the notes I have. And Kincaid at the end, you can tell that he blames himself for taking Jimmy to rehab. You know, Jimmy was turned into part of the drug, so he lost his friend. And at the very end, just the, just the countenance of him, the attitude, shows that he has regret for allowing his friend to be turned into Whoa. brain matter. And that's all the notes I have. That's all the notes I have as well. What's your focus of the area this week? It's H.G. Wells' book, First Men in the Moon. Uh, First Men in the Moon? In the Moon, I know. I'll explain it. <laughs> I think there was a Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, uh, because there's a movie about this as well. Right? I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that, I believe there is a movie, and I believe it was I, on MST3K. And after the focus air, we'll be back after a word from our sponsor, after a uh, spot from another podcast here on the Dead TV Podcast with the second episode of this podcast. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Today I'm talking about H.G. Wells' book, The First Men in the Moon, published in 1901. No, you heard me right. It's The First Men in the Moon, not on the moon, even though that would be accurate as well. You see, in H.G. Wells' vision, the moon is hollow and inhabited by insectoids. The only good bug is a dead bug. The derogatory term prawn is used for the alien, and obviously it implies something that is a bottom feeder that, that scavenges the leftovers. I mean, you can't say they don't look like that. That's what they look like, right? They look like prawns. That's just a couple quotes from Starship Troopers and District 9. H.G. Wells was the first to envision aliens as insectoids, thusly beginning a sci-fi genre that both those films actually belong to. But before I get ahead of myself, let me tell you the plot of the book. The First Men in the Moon is about two men, Bradford, who's a failed businessman, and Caver, who is a scientist. They meet, and Caver lets him in on what he's been working on in the lab, which is developing a material that repels gravity, like magnets may repel each other when positioned just so. This material he created, he named Caverite after himself. When Bradford sees it in action, he gets a dollar signs in his eyes, and then sees all the practical applications for it. But instead of doing any of those, Caver suggests they am building a spherical craft, covering it in caverite, and then going to the moon. H.G. Wells is vague, using speculative science to explain concepts that he could only imagine at the time. It makes the whole experience feel more real, despite this being a fictional story. You can certainly tell that they did not know very much about the moon in the Victorian age because the characters don't bring any environmental protective equipment, only a gun. They pack some bags, add the oxygen-producing devices, lock themselves in, and take off. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. The sphere shoots upwards towards the moon, and they open and close window shutters to control the speed of ascent and descent as they come within the gravitational pull of the moon. It lands with a crashing clunking sound as it settles into the soft material of the moon's surface. 
In reality, this is dust, but H.G. Wells saw it as solidified oxygen, and the moments after the sun rises, that oxygen turns into a dense fog of atmosphere and triggers a jungle-like bloom of vegetation to grow. Bradford and Caver have some fun with the lighter gravity, jumping and bounding around like five-year-olds at the trampoline park. They lose track of their sphere in the process as the overgrowth obscures their craft. Hunger induces them to eat some local mushrooms, and they become inebriated. They panic a little and stumble into a crater that held what they called moon calves and herders that seemed to be bipedal creatures that they dubbed selenites after the Greek goddess Selene, who is a personification of the moon itself. The moon calf herders resembled that of insects with whip-like tentacles, wearing leather clothes of sorts. It reminds me of the video game Hollow Knight. They get captured after passing out from the shrooms, and they wake up inside the moon with a ticking or mechanical sound coming from deep within the moon. Communication is impossible. The sounds they make a human can't reproduce, and the gesticulations just don't make sense to the humans. But they notice that the chains holding their hands and feet are pure gold. The insectoid selenites treat them well, feeding them and carrying them when they need it, but Bradford turned violent, wanting to escape back home, grabbing a couple gold crowbars and damaging or killing selenites to get back to the surface. Cavor and Bradford separate to find the spear. Bradford finds it, can't find Cavor anymore, and then assumes he's dead and takes off towards the earth with the gold too. But Caver is not dead, just taken by the selenites. Caver gains his freedom when the insect race begin to learn English to communicate with him. He learns more of the insectoid race and sends radio messages back to Earth. Caver learns that the entire lunar society live underground, are a multitude of shapes and sizes, performing surgery on each other to change their shape to effectively do the job that they get assigned to. There are females, males, and gender-neutral selenites that behave much like a hive does, where non-breeding insects are the drones or workers. They augment their minds, too, in order to remember everything so they don't write anything down. The one with the biggest brain is called the Grand Lunar, the master of the moon. Any insects without work eat the luminous mushrooms, go to sleep like cicadas, until work needs to be done again. Upon meeting the Grand Lunar, Caver explains the violence of humans, explains about war, and how he came to the moon. The book closes with the last transmission that begins to explain how to make Caverite, and that he was a fool to tell the Grand Lunar everything. It alludes to either the bugs feared more humans coming from Earth or that they themselves were going to do war with Earth. It's not quite clear, but considering the Martians from the War of the Worlds, either situation was possible. That ticking or mechanical sound deep within the moon could have been some technological advancement, but H.G. Wells never goes into it. When this book came out, Jules Verne was pissed. He had been writing about travel to the moon from 1865 and thought that anti-gravity was a lazy explanation instead of using real science in a story. Irish author Robert Cromie was also very upset because his novel, A Plunge into Space, published in 1890, also used anti-gravity and accused H.G. Wells of stealing the idea. In popular culture, though, H.G. won that test of time. The word Caverite has been synonymous with space travel. Not only is the word found in a number of science fiction publications, like The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Warehouse 13, or The Martian War, but it is also the name of a stealth astro spaceship built by Horizon Aircraft. The first men in the moon inspired C.S. Lewis as well, 
to such a degree that he idolized H.G. Wells and he said that it was, quote, the best of the sort of science fiction I have read. You can see the inspiration manifest in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy series. This novel has been made into several movies. In fact, the first science fiction movie, A Trip to the Moon in 1902, was a conglomeration of Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and French writer Georges Sadoul. The lunar inhabitants are called Selenites. I'm sure you've seen that one famous bit in the film where the bullet-shaped craft hits the moon in the eye. It's one of the most famous black-and-white silent film scenes of all time. But if you want to watch a faithful adaptation of the book, then do a Google search for the 2010 BBC version. It's practically line by line. This version stars Rory Kinnear as Bradford and Mark Gattis as Cavour. The CGI aliens aren't bad either, if a little hokey at times. The Grand Lunar rivals the Eternal in its design. The ending doesn't leave the vagueness of H.G. Wells. It explicitly states that the Selenites plan to attack Earth. I highly recommend this adaptation. Since this is the last H.G. Wells book I'll be reviewing, I'll leave you with some thoughts from the famous astrophysicist Carl Sagan. You, Carl Sagan, scientist, astronomer, enlightened man, you think that indeed there may be some sort of intelligence out there? May, surely, surely may. There's, we now realize, an enormous number of planets, a range of planetary systems around the nearby stars. So there's a lot of potential abodes for life, that's one thing. Then there's the question of organic matter the carbon-rich complex molecules that are essential for the kind of life we know about are fantastically abundant. They litter the universe. We see them in asteroids and comets and the moons in the outer solar system and even in the cold, dark spaces between the stars. So the stuff of life is everywhere. And then there's time. There are billions of years for biological evolution on all those worlds. There are many worlds that are much older than ours. So you put those together, lots of places, lots of organic matter, lots of time, and it seems very hard to believe that uh, our paltry little planet is the only one that's inhabited. Dorgan Ramen is a restaurant in Ashland, Massachusetts. Serves traditional and authentic Japanese ramen, Thai noodle soups, and the best chicken wings in the Metro West. Everything done in-house from scratch, and they use only the highest quality products from small farms. Co-chef owners, Papanook and Alan McIntosh, combine their culinary skills with traditional Japanese cuisine to create an authentic, amazing flavor in every dish. Located at 1 West Union Street on Ashland, Massachusetts, their phone number is 508 309-3416 or they can be located on Facebook at Dorgan Ramen Ashland and on their website as well www.dorganramen.com And we're back with the second episode of War of the Worlds of the Series Season 2 with two titles <laughs> Season 2 Episode 10 Originally aired January 22, 1990, The Defector. When an alien weapon intended to kill humans via computer systems backfires, its creator, Kimo, is maimed in the process and then sentenced to death for his incompetence. Having developed human emotions as a result of his accidents, Kimo teams with Kincaid to destroy the weapon. 
you got to do it like the Rocky and Bullwinkle uh, announcer, uh, the Defector, or almost tomorrow. Because <laughs> this episode what had an alien weapon intended to kill humans uh, by computer systems backfires like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, this episode was directed by Armand Mastaroni. Do we have we we talked about this guy before? I'm sometimes not always keeping up with the uh, directors of these episodes, but uh, let's see what else he's done. He'd worked on The Dark Shadows. Oh, he's still working today. Ooh. Uh, he worked on The Dark Shadows and Ghost Killer, Never Say Goodbye, When Love and Hate Survive Death, Soul, Secret of the Gods, Noah's Room, They Kill, Miracle Underground, The Girl from Hollywood. Those are all in post-production or pre-production right now. So this guy is heavily still working today. A lot of the stuff he does is in television. And yes, we have. We He's directed eight episodes of Friday the 13th, the series. Why haven't we had this guy on the show, Mr. Zeneca? He's done everything we've covered, goddammit! Uh, he's still got two episodes left on War of the World. So this is a guy we should probably try to have on the show. Because he's also done episodes of Tales from the Dark Side, which is a show that I would love us to do, depending on how long it ran. Um... And, uh, Tales from the Dark... Ooh, we're not doing Tales from the Dark Side. Um, <laughs> Tales from the Dark Side ran for 90 episodes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we no, would be on that friend. forever. Um, uh, but yeah, this guy is still working today. We should have him on the show before we're done with War of the Worlds, because I don't think he's doing any... Unless we do the, uh, Dark Shadows remake, which we could possibly do one day, but we're not... It's not on our block anytime soon. We should really try and reach out to this guy, because he's done so much TV we have covered. All right, get to that, Dr. Chris. No, I got the last guest. <laughs> I got your future, uh, your 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 teenage love interest. <laughs> yeah, but you know, my job is research, and you know. Oh the... come on! <laughs> I I seriously got oh oh, oh and, and I got John D. LeMay, right? Oh, and I got Yancy Butler. Oh, and it's I got you uh, get all the guests. Yes, you get all the guests. I I do get all the guests, okay. guest, but uh, if you could like do some uh, okay, then you then here's your research job, research where I can <laughs> find this guy to reach out to him. <laughs> hey, I got the biographer for Ooh. Charles Adams, and that was actually pretty tough to get. Okay, guess what? This guy, no one from Adams family, is left alive that will speak to us because they are very old. Or they didn't get a message from whoever their handler is at the local Connecticut college that he teaches at. That's where John um, Austin, right? Yes, he, yeah. He, yeah, John Austin is very private. Yes, but he works at a college apparently teaching uh, acting uh, in Connecticut. But his handler, I don't know, just didn't seem to want to give him the message, I guess. So I, so I got the biographer. You know, you can get all the rest. <laughs> Come on, Dexter. Oh, come on. You can, re you can reach out to this guy. He's on Facebook. Use your feminine wiles. <laughs> anyway, our, our main defector character, Kimo, is, he was played by Charles McCaughan. And, McCaughan? McCaughan? M C C A U G H A N. I swear to God, I'm gonna reach out to this guy. You're gonna get us. You're gonna. You need to. Okay, seriously, you need to hunt down Sam Keith because I've already tried. Okay, 
I'll, I'll work on that. Like one. seriously, that's your show. That's the thing you wanted to do. We're doing it, but you have to reach out to Sam Keith or one of the voice actors from the show would be great too. But Sam Keith is the fucking creator of the Max. That would be the big thing. <laughs> okay, Doctor Chris, I'll do some homework. Yeah, like research where to find him. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Go on. I'm um while I'm uh, messaging uh, the the director of this episode. So, in this episode, we see the beginnings of what we would come to know as internet chatting. So, back in 1988, when this was actually filmed, there was only two styles of kind of chat room server type of things. One is MUD servers, which is a multi-user dungeon server. Um, originally, they were stated to like make you know role-playing games online, etc., but it ended up being an expanded thing to message board that... Ah, stop. Something is terribly... Okay, try it again. So it was like the expanded thing to message board. So people would connect on a MUD server and then be able to talk like that. Uh, Then came in 1988, IRC servers. So those were internet relay chat platforms. And those started becoming the go-to for internet chatting. What they show on screen is more like a MUD server. They're connecting to the grapevine. And then they're able to interact with people individually or as a group on what would be like a group page, group chat type of thing. Stop. Um, Go ahead. So they connect on the server called the Grapevine, and through there, they could have private messages going from person to person, computer to computer networking, or they can actually have the group chat uh, basically in the MUD server room, which is what they do at the end of the episode. His friends online is called Ace, and Ace is one of those people that are able to get Kincaid and his buddies anything that they really want to get. The loss of Ace means a loss to the entire community because it seems that he was a provider of objects and things to a great many people. And we do meet a lot of Kincaid's online friends in this episode. Uh, There is uh, Lonely Heart, (laughs) uh, Roller, and uh, Skuggs. And Skuggs is the one that he meets in person first. And I believe we've seen that character before, but not that actor playing that character. Mm. Did you know it took me like 25 minutes into this episode to really get into the plot line? I just honestly thought this was the dullest episode we have covered so far. Certainly not as good as the last one. No, the computer system hacking, backfire, the whole like, you know, early Skype internet chatting, you know, the call signs like they're in Top Gun. That just was boring. So incredibly boring. Um just dull really uh you know just just it it was kind of ridiculous honestly um ace and lionheart um just did i was like yeah. what the hell <laughs> so i i have to correct myself so skuggs is actually played by the same woman and has multiple episodes with war of the world so this was her second episode uh we're gonna see her a few more times more in the future oh good uh, Charles uh, Kerr, uh, who played uh, Ace. And Bel- 
Uh, Belinda Mintz plays Scuggs, by the way. Okay. The, but Charles, who plays Ace, um, he was from a t- cartoon series, uh, died in 2011, age 88 years old, but he was on a cartoon series um, that I, I distinctly remember because he's in 15 episodes of it. He was Jax Laleen on Beetlejuice. Yeah. Yes, which is uh, completed on the in a DVD set for like 20 bucks so you can get all the episodes of Beetlejuice. We have like 84 episodes. Um, and he was also Dr. McGibbon on Friday the 13th, the series. My wife has a dog. Oh, yes, that episode. That very weird episode. Yeah. My wife's dog. Yeah. Uh, doesn't have really anything on his IMDb for anything significant until Beetlejuice. Like, Beetlejuice is like his biggest thing for 15 episodes. That's so weird. He's really like kind of like a nobody actor unless IMDb is either lacking lacking his credits or he's done like a bunch of stuff on Broadway or you know he's a play actor. Mm, possible. Yeah, it's just very strange that it's just everything on his IMDb is nothing like a bit part here and a bit part there and then Beetlejuice, fifteen episodes. Yeah, yeah. Very strange. Um, but he's ace. Um. The director of this episode, um, who we said I did just send an email out to, so a message out to, he's on Facebook. Nice picture of him and um, from 2019 with him and uh, John Landis. So definitely, you know, kind of up there doing stuff. Hopefully he'll respond back to us. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. He's, again, he's done. Uh, we definitely should have had tried to have him on for Friday the 13th. I understand War of the World seems to be polarizing for people to want to talk about, but Friday the 13th he did eight episodes of, and there's very little bit negative feedback regarding that show. Well, if he's on, we'll talk to him about both. Yes, definitely. We'll stick it with an episode that he's on for. Whether or not we record with that episode is entirely irrelevant, but we will stick it with an episode that he's com- got coming up in the future. So, um... The, let's see, uh, judgment rendered, um, rejection termination is the, the best, uh, kind of quote that I wrote down from the episode. Yeah, that is, uh, you know, the, the energy reversal happens where it fries both Ace and Chemo and also twists Chemo's mind a little bit to be human-like. I don't know how that happened, but... Uh, he turns a little more human-like. Then he's put in front of the Eternal for judgment because they, the Mothran want everything perfect, you know, strives for perfection. And because he's disfigured from uh, the energy displacement, uh, <laughs> the Eternal basically just rejects him and sends him off to be terminated, you know, just you know, put under the, the corpse eliminator and poof, in a, in a puff of smoke. And he doesn't comply. Runs away, therefore defecting. Don't defect from the aliens. They'll come back and get you. They always do. Hold on. Okay, just say the last thing you just said. They always do. Okay, go on with your next note. So, Chemo goes to Ace's place because it's the only address that he has that he thinks that he can be safe at and still connect to the computer systems that he was working on. He wanted to complete his, you know, computer death ray. I don't even know what to call it, really. It's, you know, it's killing people through their computer systems. He wanted to finish that. He wasn't allowed to. 
And then he suddenly, now with this human brainwave patterning, now feels that he needs to take apart these computers because it will just create death everywhere. And he would want to rather live with the humans as almost like a compromise. There must be sort of some sort of compromise, but he can't give away the location of the aliens because it would just mean genocide to his race. Kincaid understands. And this, this one thing about this character is it's so well written because Kincaid is empathetic. When Harrison finds out that he's an alien, he's immediately like, what is he doing here? But Kincaid understands this nuanced look that the alien has at life. And they team up in order to take apart this computer. Take apart this weapon. You know, the casting agent for this, uh, casting director for this episode and a bunch of other episodes as well, uh, her name is Susan Forrest. I wonder if she's related to Dennis Forrest. Don't know. Uh, she's actually still working alive today. Uh, her last credits are of 2021. Pretty Hard Cases and Hudson and the Wrecks. Uh, Frankie Drake Murders, Nurses, Fortune and Son, October Faction, Heartland, Mary Kills People, uh, Orphan Black. Uh, she was 30 episodes on that for the casting director. Um, this is somebody that Mr. Zeneca could research to reach out to. <laughs> <laughs> She was a casting. You're giving me more homework now. Yes. Uh, by the way, she was a casting director for 19 episodes of War of the Worlds as well. So she could have quite the number of stories to talk about. Plus, if she is related to Dennis, that would be great to have her on to talk about um, whoever you know, how, however they were related. It doesn't really say much about <laughs> her personal details, um, but they do. You know, it, they could be. Connected. Oh yeah, it's, it's very polite to you know call someone up and talk about their relative. <laughs> well, I'd yeah, I mean, if she's, but if she, but if she was the casting director for the sh for the show, nineteen episodes of this show, by the way, so seasons one and two, um, and she was related to one of the stars of the entire second season, plus a guest star mm -hmm. on Friday the Thirteenth as well. That would be something to talk about. She could have some great stories to talk about, Dennis, since he's, you know, deceased. Mm -hmm. That would be really great to, you know, to not just have, you know, because she we she could talk about her own career, but also talk about her brother, husband, you know, whoever this. Again, however they were were related, if they if they even were, if it was just a coincidence, that could be fine as well, because she has course, nineteen episodes. Could be a popular last name. Who knows? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying she has nineteen credits on War of the Worlds. She would definitely have some stories yeah. for us to uh, get into. Okay, I'll try to reach out to her. That would just be really interesting. A lot of times, casting people have the best stories because they meet everybody. You know, like you found out. Like, I recently found out that um, the casting director was talking about Iron Man, the first one. And uh, not only, you know, did they obviously see Robert Downey Jr., but they also saw Hugh Jackman and Timothy Oliphant and um, Clive Owen for that role. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and a lot of times casting directors see some of the weirdest people you find out for a role, and you're like, wow, really? They were going to be so-and-so once upon a time? Possibly? You know, like I found out Michael Bean was up to uh, do uh, Wolverine once. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so the danger of this weapon, if it actually goes massive, is that it can take control of nuclear bombs, take control of their financial system, cause chaos, and kill its users, you know, with this energy device. It's very detrimental. Um, so chemo actually goes back to... Uh, the alien nest, the alien hive, and uh, blows up the machine. Fights with Maldazar, and uh, then 
once the machine's blown up, just disappears. But we find out later with a, a meeting between Kincaid and himself that he's still alive and he's, you know, says goodbye, friend, and leaves on his own journey of self-adventure. I don't know. <laughs> his first step towards peace. What do you think this episode was influenced by for them to do it the way they did? Because it's just very off compared to the rest of the season. What 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 do you think drove the the type of um, uh, plot line they did for it? Hmm. In 1990, there's probably a lot of East Berlin, West Berlin, Berlin Wall stuff going on at the time because that was just before it came down. Right. I think. But nothing about the whole. Like, the technology part of this, do you think this was influenced by anything? Because it's kind of reminded me of uh, both of these episodes, back-to-back. Did you ever watch Max Headroom? Yes. I was picking up a lot of Max Headroom vibes, especially the way Max Headroom, the time period Max Headroom was set in. Now, Max Headroom did come out prior to War of the Worlds, I think, or the same year, right? It was 1989, 88? Something around there. Yeah. I think it only lasted for a season, too. It did. Uh, so the Berlin Wall actually came down on November 9th, 1989. So it, I, this might have been influenced by the Berlin Wall stuff, mm-hmm. um, but this might have also been completed production before that came down, but there would still have been that tension in the air. Mm. And so this is a, an episode talking about, you know, peace between aliens and humans and the small steps towards that. So perhaps mm, political influence there i'm not sure hmm it's also funny that a lot of the actors we keep i keep pulling to be like hey we should have this person on the show hey we should have that person on the show they're all canadian of course of course it's yes a canadian show yeah <laughs> um but susan forrest uh does pop up but not like immediately so definitely need some uh, research not as easy to find as like let's say i found like yancey butler just by going into facebook you know what i mean and like mm-hmm. right at the top of her facebook private personal page or whatever is a link to like the, the fan thing being like follow me at the fan thing if i don't know you i'm not gonna you know accept your friend request kind of thing and that led me to you know her eventually her manager and stuff so okay that's all the nights that i have for this episode again it was not my favorite i was so in and out of it i was like oh god is this over yet <laughs> yeah that's that's really all the notes i have kincaid lost a lot of friends Skugs get gets hurt um but she is okay she will come back and that's all the time we have here tonight on the Dead TV Podcast, covering these two episodes of War of the Worlds, the series. Uh, let's see. How many episodes do we have left for the show? So we're at episode 10. I think there's only 20 episodes this season, correct? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. This is a shorter think... season than the first season. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Yep. So we're halfway through the second season of War of the Worlds, which means we will be on this for about two and a half more months. Uh, we are now recording this on the 29th of June. This will be posting uh, the 4th of July weekend. So if you're listening to this on the 4th of July weekend, when we post it, happy 4th of July, be safe, fireworks, get vaccinated, go to cookouts, that whole thing. Protect your, protect your pets from that noise, too. That, too. And uh, so it means that we will be on this through July, through... Uh, August, and then uh, ending in the middle of September, which I think is right where we're on track to be, which I mentioned before, to start the Max. The Max. Yep. And then we'll be on the Max until uh, the middle of October, just in time to start a horror comedy show, The Reaper. Or Reaper. (laughs) 
Um, see how it all aligns, you know what I mean? Go back to horror in time for October. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's almost like we planned this. I, I know, it's crazy, almost. it's crazy. And the max is going to be very quick to do, too, because it's only like 15-minute little episodes. Yeah. So, and uh, Mr. Zeneca uh, promised we'll have Sam Keith on, right? No? Uh, uh, <laughs> hey, I got my radio show, Todd McFarlane, okay? That's... Hey, you've been doing your radio show for 10 years, and this is only... <laughs> excuse me, excuse you, 13 our... years. <laughs> and by the time we finish the max, it will be 14 years. Uh, I will try to get a guest on the show. I think Sam Keith would be the best person for you to try to get to. Okay. <laughs> yes, Daddy. No, what? That's not a command. <laughs> I crack the whip as hard as you probably do. <laughs> no, that that is true. That is true. My minions do a lot for me. Right now, they're making beef jerky for another one of my events. Oh, okay. There you go. So you have minions that you could easily be like, go find me, Sam Keith. Go get me um, uh, Aaron Pelecki from, uh, she's the hot girl on Reaper. Um, she was once Wonder Woman, by the way. Don't, don't tell my secrets. That's how I get all this shit done. Oh, okay. Well, you're the one who just <laughs> exposed it with your beef jerky story. You know, it's... Stop, hold on. I'm sure you have something profound to say, but so I just want to wait till the noise is done. All right, go ahead. <laughs> sure, you know, people like working for me. I treat them well, like a good evil villain would. You know, that's why I get minions. That's, I think all evil villains should treat their minions well. That's how you get loyalty. And, you know, beat them when they want to be beaten. You know, that type of thing. <laughs> so since this is my podcast, that means you're my minion? No, you're my partner and you're my co-host. I'm totally kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't want to ensue your wrath or whatever behind the scenes. <laughs> that is all the time and all the jokes that we have for this episode of the Dead TV Podcast. Tune in on Facebook, Radio of Horror. Sorry, Facebook, the Dead TV Podcast. And email us, thatradiofhorror at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, at ChrisDSAV or at ElegantlyKinky and RadioHard.com, where you can see all the other episodes, or iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, where we list all the episodes we've ever covered of all the shows we've ever done, such as Constantine, The Adams Family, Friday the 13th, which we've mentioned a bunch of times. And uh, like I said, uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another two exciting episodes of War of the Worlds, the original series. Good night. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the super friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's Who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lance and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchcock and Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher.